his family was had to quickly go over to the east and the, the children were saying, well, what? We thought we were going to see Grandpa, who's sick. And then they got into the east, but not at the grandparents' place. And, and they, suddenly they were surrounded by Stasi agents and they said, well, we have to tell you, your father's a Stasi agent. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. I'm speaking today with Professor Alison Lewis, one of the co-authors of Cold War Spy Stories from Eastern Europe, which has just been published. With the opening of the secret police archives in many countries in Eastern Europe, it comes with a unique chance to excavate many forgotten spy stories and narrate them for the first time. Cold War Spy Stories from Eastern Europe brings together a wide range of Cold War spy stories from the Eastern Bloc and explores stories compiled from the East German Stasi, the Romanian Securitate and the Ukrainian KGB files. Now, many of our fans are proud owners of a Cold War Conversations coaster, a gift from me to thank them for helping the podcast financially. In July, Peter Lauwitz, Winkler, Simon Curtis, Remy Louvier, Hack Green, Secret Nuclear Bunker, and Thomas Polantz joined this select band. For the price of a couple of coffees a month to cover the show's increasing costs and keep us on the air, you can get a coaster too. Just head over to patreon.com slash cold war pod that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash cold war pod so back to today's episode we recorded in the manchester central library so do forgive us for any weird background noises i'm delighted to welcome professor alison lewis to cold war conversations my first question for you alison is where does your interest in the cold war come from huh well, um, I suppose it goes back to um, to when I was studying in Germany, in, in West Germany in the 80s, um, and I was looking for a PhD topic and, um, and I kept on running through things and I just kept on coming across this, this feminist author, Ermthard Morgner, uh, this book that had come out and was said to be the Bible of feminism, and, and so I decided... <laughs> Uh, and it was fan, full of fantasy and, and it was wild and crazy and it had got past the censors. And so I decided to do my PhD on East German literature and um, then um, I discovered in about 86 there was a new scheme to travel to East Germany for students and um, it just sort of appeared from nowhere and I think it was a new scheme and you had, it was a sort of a fee-paying scheme. So I was a a fee-paying student, probably one of the first and very few fee-paying students in East Germany, and I was paid US dollars. Um, quite a lot, actually. I paid about 300 US dollars at the time, and um, I got to live in East Germany for four weeks to do research, and um, and that was actually wasn't all that helpful for my PhD, but it was helpful for everything that, that's happened since, and so I finished the PhD, and... Then I started to go back to the things that I'd experienced during my time there and thought, 
there's a research project or two in there. And Just two? <laughs> yeah, well, I think there's been a whole lot more. I think there's been about three or four books or something since then. And it's, I suppose, because of that sort of personal connection of those four weeks living in East Berlin and not really knowing what was going on that has just left this sort of left me with this never-ending curiosity for, for what really was going on. Right. And how did you find East Berlin when you first arrived? I mean, you, you must have had sort of, you know, you've watched the spy movies and stuff like that. I mean, how, how much did it live up to expectation or not? Um, it sort of did live up to expectations. It was... Um, I mean, it's quite a long time ago. I mean, I had these quite enduring memories of having endless run-ins with bureaucracy, with, with bureaucrats, and just doing the wrong thing, and, and, and then not knowing what to do, whether I was supposed to smile or whether I was supposed to offer them a bribe. I mean, I had no idea, and, and I just came across this intransigence of, no, you can't do this, and no, you cannot, you're in East Berlin, you cannot go back to West Berlin and visit your cousin. And I was saying, but I'm an Australian, I'm free to move. And they just looked at me as if I was, you know, come from Mars. And and so I, I had no, and then I would order books in the library for, on my topic, you know, things to do with the, the new socialist view of humanity and, or no, some theses and things. And um, they had this sort of stamp saying, um, uh, you know, this was not for public consumption. This was confidential. And I and and, and I said, no, but I want to read it because it was catalogued. Mm. And they said, no, you can't. And I said, but I'm an Australian. I'm allowed to read this. And they said, no, you can't. And it was sort of so. I I suppose having experienced that that I, I found I suppose that did live up to expectations, you know. And um, but you know, I was I was. Um, and I don't think I had thought about the Stasi at all when I went there. I thought this is, I think I believe the line that this was a great place for women and for women's emancipation. And and one of my, the first questions I asked, I actually got to speak to Imtad Morgna on the telephone, in a public telephone somewhere in the student accommodation. And, and I started spouting off this stuff about, you know, how East Germany had solved the contradiction between men and women and it was, the, you know, the Marx's second contradiction or something. And she just laughed at me and said, this is a terrible place for women, you know, and just started ranting at me about all these, um, um, this misogyny that she'd been putting up with. And so here's, I, I couldn't reconcile these two worlds and, of course, that was the public and the and and so I suppose the private world. Yeah, yeah. So the reality was l massively different to what what you'd expected there. E even the even the real yeah, the reality of these sort of critical writers who were who were still presenting East Germany as being, you know, as having addressed things like abortion and childcare and women's work. Mm. I mean, that was still the case, but there was still a lot of misogyny and um women were not in positions of power and then yeah. and yeah yeah unless you were margot honecker i suppose <laughs> that's right <laughs> <laughs> um now lo looking at your works your your area of speciality appears to be the stasi and i'd like to ask a, a few um questions on that 
I'm always interested to know how effective they they really were because you you hear about these mind-numbingly detailed reports that were actually either incorrect or made up by uh, IMs, the you know unofficial informers. I mean, in your research, how 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 effective do you think they were? Well, before I look at the effective thing, I mean, I mean, the thing is, they weren't. <sighs> The, the question about whether they're made up, I mean, um, they they had these amazing techniques of, of cross-checking, uh, of quali- you know, what we would call quality control. So in a sense, they weren't fabricated entirely. They might be embellished or uh, exaggerated, but you know, the EMs were spied on by other EMs. And, 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 and other EMs. So they might, so they were triangulated. And so the, the Stasi was extremely good at comparing the report, let's say, of, um, you know, an underground event in a, in an apartment with, with some musicians and some writers. They would compare different sources. And so even, even IM was, um, or an informant was, you know, making it up or, or f- missing important things out then they would be called into line. And so this sort of triangulation or, or cross-checking mm. um, was was a way of keeping them all on track. And um, so, but they are still full of amazingly banal bits of um, opinion and gossip. Mm. I'm quite interested in the fact that really they, they're, they're quite similar to gossip um, and it's all written down in this, official document and becomes part of an official um ne- what an official public uh, a, a secret mm. official public sphere so do you think there's value in them from an an anthropological sort yes. of sort of way oh i do i think they're an amazing source of of uh, information about social life especially the ones on the underground that i've looked at because that was the brief to talk about who was there what they talked about what they did um and so they are really interesting about that sort of events i mean they're very accurate in the sense because they've all got to have dates and they talk about you know who was where and so they are a bit of an interesting counter to, to memory because people can't say, oh, well, I was always in the underground and I was at every event. Well, we can check <laughs> whether they were. Um, I, I noticed one of the chapters in the book is around Marcus Wolf and his biography. Um, what's your sort of views on him and, and how he sort of has portrayed his career Post vendor, yeah, I mean he's he's a very interesting character, and and that that autobiography, a man without a face, is full of amazing revelations about all the things that the Stasi was up to, you know, the foreign intelligence arm, um, you know, from working with the RAF terrorists to I'm pretty sure there was something in there about trying to buy a Greek island or maybe they didn't that didn't come off but and all about the Romeo and the Juliet spies but he is definitely engaging in some pretty willful re self reinvention and re self-fashioning as we call it in the uh, Mary Beth Stein calls it that in the chapter um where he's you know he obviously can't deny his past <laughs> because that's what also makes him interesting to us 
but he tries to whitewash his involvement in repression. He mm. says he didn't approve of the worst aspects of repression and he does a little bit of a mea culpa thing of, oh, if only I had stopped some of that. And so he tries to come out as the, the good guy mm. and he's quite clever in that and, and this chapter we have really does look at that those points where he sort of disarms the reader um by get back admitting to some sort of fault or mm. but then basically says that he really thinks he was more on the side of the reformers yeah and and do you think that's an attempt by him to avoid imprisonment or was did he have aspirations of political uh, of a political role in a new East Germany post um, the fall know. of the SED. I don't think he had aspirations. I, yeah, I don't know whether they um, see. I don't know what whether there were was a prospect of him being put on trial, like many of the other Politburo members. I mean, the thing about him is that he had stepped down as head of head of. Yeah, he'd retired. Hadn't he had he? retired, yeah. and he'd actually sort of been out or sideline because of his morals, you know, because he had was divorced and had a new partner. Oh, those sort of morals. You know, they they you know, they didn't like that. So he was blackmailable, I suppose. Mm. So he was sidelined a bit and um so he during the vendor he also spoke on the fourth of what was it, the fourth of December 89 on the Alexanderplatz. Mm. I think he was one of those sort of reformers. And so, you know, it's, I mean, I can see why he's doing it and it is credible. And I have to say, it's a pretty amazing uh, autobiography. Oh, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I have read it a number of times and I know that my friend Shane at Spybury, we had a conversation on one of the podcast episodes about how credible it is and the, and the revelations. Um, about that and it it is incredible because he was obviously right on the inside oh. and it's probably the best one of the few accounts in english of somebody who actually worked there apart from the Werner Stiller work that's right that's right it is and um and you do get the impression that maybe he was slightly different from erich milke who was doing all the domestic sort of repression um business and and you know, and, and his background, Wolf, you know, brother, a famous filmmaker, and, you know, he is just a slightly different character. Yeah, um, he does come across as a sort of, can I put it, probably a more cultured person, whereas Milka is, you know, he's from, you know, the fist fights of the Roterkampfer in 1930s Germany. And, that's right. You know, he's much more from, from that side of that's things. That's right, exactly. So quite different sort of um, class backgrounds, really, or backgrounds. And um, so, and I don't think they got on all that well. Um, but, yeah. With the, with the Stasi, I mean... Their penetration of West Germany seemed to be quite deep, what with the Romeo agents and with um, uh, Gunter Guillaume, the um, secretary to, to Willy, Willy Brandt. I mean, how deep, I mean, that's pretty deep, I guess, anyway. But, you know, how extensive was their penetration? Well, I, um, I've i looked at uh, Werner Stiller, the, the agent who defected, um, and he had a whole lot of, he ran a whole lot of agents in the West. And... Um, 
um, I've looked at a couple of their, the cases um, because when he defected, they, of course, were exposed. And so the Stasi got, knew that uh, Stiller had defected and tried to recall a couple of their agents quickly, but uh, in some cases they didn't manage to. So, so a couple of them, there was a guy in um, some electricity works. So they, he had plants in um, sort of energy um, and one guy was arrested and for being a Stasi agent, and another one was recalled, and he had to take his whole family with him. So he had wife and two young son, two adolescent sons. So who had no idea he was an agent <laughs> because he was just also working for electricity works or something. I've forgotten. That a lot of them all left families behind. So she still left a, a daughter behind who's been quite traumatized and who's written her memoirs. Um, the the one that was um, Ra- um, Rauf Eisen, his name is. His family was had to quickly go over to the east, and the, the children were saying, well, "What? We thought we were going to see Grandpa, who's sick, because there was a, some grandparents in the east." And then they got into the east, but not at the grandparents' place. And, and they, suddenly they were surrounded by Stasi agents, and they said, "Well, we have to tell you, your father's a Stasi agent." <laughs> For the kids, it was they were devastated. Um, one of the older ones said, "I don't want to stay here. I want to go back home." The, the other one said, "I don't want to stay here." Mm. Um, but they made him stay. So they let one child, one son go home, and um, the, the rest of the story is terribly tragic because the father eventually realised that he had been brainwashed and had didn't have a clue what system he'd been supporting. Yeah. And so he then sided with his son who hated it, who just wanted to go home. And then they tried to escape and um, they tried everything to escape. They tried, They went to the embassy, the West German embassy in Hungary and the West Germans said, I'm sorry, you you lived in West Germany? You were... Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. You committed treason. You're a West German. You were spying. You were committed treason. You want us to save you? Sorry. There's some <laughs> echoes here of uh, present day headlines, actually, as well in the UK, with ISIS and people going over to ISIS and then wanting to return in, in the situation you've described. There, there are echoes, and th- these people had no idea they weren't going to get any support from either side. And so in the end, they decided to um, try to flee across the the, north, the sea and they got arrested because the Stasi had been listening in and they were arrested, yeah. taken to Horn-Schönhausen jail and then to Bautzen jail. And 
um, the father, I think, died soon after, or died, uh, and the son was eventually released and allowed to return back to West yeah. Germany. But I mean, there's some pretty um, amazing sort of stories, and that was all due to Stiller. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to have to have you back on Cold War Conversations. We just don't have enough time for all this stuff, and we are here to talk about the the book. So uh, the book is called Cold War Spy Stories from Eastern Europe. It's published in August 2019. We're recording this in, I'm trying to remember the month, uh, February. Um, so we like to be ahead of the game here on Cold War Conversations. Uh, so how did the original idea come for the book? Um, I had been collaborating with uh, Valentin Glajar and Karina Petrescu on uh, another book on an East um, secret police f- uh, files from the Eastern Bloc, and we decided to do a panel at a conference on Cold War spy stories and uh, just put a call for papers out there to see what we'd get, and, and we got some amazing, amazing pieces of research. Um, you know, people working on on file cases, um, but also working on espionage and fiction there, there is a great range here i mean i i although i haven't had a chance to read the book yet because it's not published because it's not published <laughs> um the the table of contents is a uh looks like a, a riveting list there's securitate in there there's kgb the stasi obviously um there's uh a chapter on fleeing the west about a 1978 aircraft hijacking um and also spies on screen, so espionage and the, and the Cold War as well. Am I stealing your notes here? No, 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 no. No, you're not. <laughs> no. Um, so there's plenty in there for uh, everybody. Well, I was going to ask you how you chose what stories to include, but I think it's you, you use the stories from the conference. From the conference, and then we commissioned... Um one or two others to try to get a bit of a balance um, to so we didn't just have Romania and um, East Germany and and yeah to get a bit of a nice balance between uh, film and 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 uh, real stories you might find my episode interesting called uh, I can't remember what number it was but cloak and dagger in Prague where I interview uh, Mark Baker who's an American journalist who was working in Prague for a US commercial magazine and uh, his involvement with the STB or his handler's involvement in the STB and then discovering much more about his... Well, he, he didn't know he was a handler. He thought he was just a fixer at the time because he was quite quite young. I think, Mark, you're, you'll allow me to say you were quite naive at the time. But um, it's, it's, a really, it's a really interesting um, story that, that he tells there because I think there's a lot of focus on Stasi, uh, KGB, but I almost find the, the more obscure stories in like Czechoslovakia and the Securitate and uh, the Polish secret services as well because, I mean, you know, there's the whole Kalinsky story in, in Poland as, as well, which is an interesting one where... You know, he's perceived by some people in Poland still as a traitor because he betrayed secrets to NATO. Well, we've got a chapter in this book. We did actually commission it because we thought, you know, it'd be fantastic to have some KGB stuff in there. And we didn't have any KGB chapters in the previous book. Um, and we commissioned um, a chapter from by Julie Fador, a colleague of mine from the University of Melbourne. 
And I could not believe, because I didn't hear the paper, I could not believe it when I read it because it's so different from the German case because it was a KGB stage managed this, this confession, this public repentance of an orthodox um, priest who was a dissident. Um, so, so, you know, he was arrested and he was forced to recant. And But it was stage managed publicly. But the thing that really shocked me was post-1990, um, he has um, been rediscovered by the the nationalists as being, uh, uh, you know, the Czechists, the, the 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 secret police officers, are the true heroes, not the dissidents. And so this is the complete opposite of what's happening in in Germany now, and this is complete revisionism, and um, it's a shocker, really. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I was recently reading reports about the um, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan and how Russia is now portraying that as a victory and how proud they are of it. And it, again, it's this worrying trend of revisionism against established fact. That's right, yes. And the thing with this, um, the, the priest, is he's actually gone along with it. He had, seems to have been so broken... And so uh, to actually give up his previous stance as a dissident and say, no, I was wrong. I have betrayed the, the, the mother country. Being a dissident, I have injured the motherland. And um, uh, it was the wrong path and being, um, you know, the Czechist is the right path. Wow. Uh, wow. So that's it's, a very powerful story. It, it's there. almost my... my Head is hurting, trying to get my uh, my thoughts around um, around that. Are there any other t- chapters that you that you'd want to highlight? Well, I suppose I should talk about mine. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, I suppose mine um, was more started was a bit of a side project from looking at um, informers. I was uh, looking at um, writers who were informers, and um, I came across somebody who was not a major poet, but who, who was in a sort of officially accredited poet, was in the, the Writers Guild, um, but who had been one of the major uh, censors and he'd written nasty, uh, devastating critiques of everybody's works that had led to the works being censored. And um, I think he was the most sort of effective or eager censor and so I decided to do a little project on him and look at censorship because not much is known about the Stasi's role in censorship because there was the censorship bureau was actually the um, Ministry for Culture and there was an office in there and so their involvement's not at all clear they weren't necessarily involved in ordinary censorship but only sometimes got involved and so I looked at this guy Uberberger's file and um he uh, has, and all his reports are, are there. And I mean, when I tell this about the research, people go, oh, but that's what we expect, you know. But the thing is, he was, this guy was so hardline and full of, you know, he, all this writing was anti socialist, counter revolutionary, even fascist. Had nothing, you know. Um, so he trashed all these very good works of literature. The Stasi didn't quite even want that. And that was the most surprising thing to me is the Stasi was going, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, 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 yeah. But 
where's the proof? Or, no, tell me more. They wanted more objective stuff. They didn't want all this ideological jargon. So that, for me, was a real eye-opener. So they were looking for more subtlety. They wanted more subtlety. They did want more subtlety. They didn't want this sort of, you know, anti-socialist counter-revolution. They wanted to know what was the, the character and what was the sort of the stance of the character. So they could then interpret if it was anti-socialist. That the Stasi didn't want this poet second-guessing how they should judge it because, you know, the Stasi was responding to the party and the party had sort of ebbs and flows and thaws and freezes. And, and so this guy was a real cold warrior, hardliner, and, and was trashing all these writers like Kirsten Vove, Volker Brown, people who were doing really well and pe- the, the regime had decided that begrudgingly to support. So it's, it's interesting. You, you talk about the Stasi responding to the ebbs and flows and the freezes and thaws. Mm. You, you always... Well, I generally think of the Stasi as just being this monolithic organisation that wants to suppress everything and not perhaps being that responsive or almost being more liberal during periods of thaws. Well, this is right. And I'm not, I mean, my experience has been that sometimes the Stasi did go with the liberalisation a little bit, but not always. Mm -hmm. So when we we saw people like Kustavov, it was always under Stasi surveillance. So... She was always under surveillance, but it was she was being published, um, and a whole lot of other writers were under surveillance, but were being published. Um, so I, I do get the impression that this poet who thought he was doing the right thing was just too hardline for the Stasi. Um, so I don't know to what extent that was just this one person. Um, it's hard to tell. But yeah, no, no, really really fascinating stuff and i'm so enjoying talking to somebody who's who's read this stuff i mean one one of the things that um you know that i I struggle with is my german isn't that strong and that and i look down some of these book lists and there's some incredible books i would love to be able to read but they're just beyond my um uh, my my german but but this book sounds fascinating because it is areas that don't generally get um, aired in some of the uh, the Stasi history books that you that, that you find out there. Now, um, one of the one of the things I was I was going to ask you about is whether you in in the the various chapters you see any differences in the way that intelligence was um, gathered by the different espionage organisations, whether there were different techniques or was it just the Soviet uh, Czechist method that applied to to all of them well it's interesting you should ask that because um i've got a new project um or putting in the grant for a new project to actually look at the spread of the the kgb um uh methods and practices across the whole of the eastern bloc um i mean as far as we know i think east germany is a bit of a special case it's more it's sort of more czechist than the czechist (laughs) Um, and so I'm, I'm sort of looking into that. This is, it's a new project to find out to what extent they actually went it alone. And, um, I mean, Mirko came to, took over the ministry in, in 50, 50 something, seven, seven eight, and, yeah. and, um, the person that he took over from was a KGB, um, sort of supporter, or he was supported by the KGB. So Vol, 
Aviva was sidelined. And so it seemed to me from that point on, the Stasi decided to go it alone and say, look, we can do as well as you can. We don't need the help of the, of the KGB. So what we need to now find out as to what extent independent practices developed. Um, for instance, I'm quite interested in like blackmail and these sorts of things because blackmail sort of is, it, it, um, you know, overt blackmail is in the, the guidelines for working with informants, but it then is dropped later on. One of the, one of the, um, the chapters that I found particularly in, intriguing, aside obviously all of them, all the other ones, um, was the, the uh, chapter about the Cold War movies. Now, you know, most of my listeners will probably be familiar with the Western movie portrayals of the Cold War, but can you tell us about some of the Eastern Bloc espionage movies? Um, well, interestingly enough, um, there were some uh, East German spy movies, um, and Caroline um, Costabile Hemming has got a chapter, chapter eight is about that, and it's she looks at two films, one from 63 called... Um, Strengeheim for eyes only, and then one from '79, which is um, called Schiffriert an Chef, and I'm not sure I can translate that. Um, and and she sort of takes the Bond model to look at to what extent these were a response to James Bond. <laughs> so were these Eastern James Bond characters, and and obviously um, you know they knew about Bond and. And some people had seen Bond. and um, So there was an attempt to create a new spy genre. But, of course, it, you know, it couldn't have all the connotations of Bond, of glamour and... Because, and, um, and, um, I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm presuming that the Bond movies were shown on West German TV and therefore would have been would have been viewed in in the east so there there would have been they would have been known they would have been known but not not yeah everybody if people watch tv or if they could get tv they would have been known so it was sort of yeah it was it was understood that that people knew bond so they had to come up with an answer to a bond to bond and so they are sort of anti-bond spy heroes so that they couldn't go down the path of let's try and create a glamorous sort of um you know, sexy, um, smooth, suave character. So their bond is still a sort of a good family father with good family yeah. values. And, and presumably he doesn't drink a vodka shake and not stir or something like that. He doesn't drink a vodka shake and not stir. No, he just, he just drinks beer, I think, although I have to ask Caroline about that one. <laughs> But it, the, the sort of – so it, it's more the, the family man and the, the ideal – socialist citizen who who happens to be a secret agent as well it's sort of the image they were trying to work that's work right with. right and he's doing his duty and by being a secret agent whereas you know i don't know with bond if you get the sense of he's doing a duty so much as well as is he i mean he's on a mission bond but he I mean, yeah, obviously he's being sent on these missions and to do these outrageous sort of i mean <sighs> You know the danger and the adventure is, is is much greater than in these East German films, and um, um, but but it's interesting the why they did it. You know, Caroline speculates a bit that it was to sort of um, just to create a bit more um, support for the for the 
for the nation and to actually make the threats a little bit more more real. You know, the fact that the East was under threat or was perceived to be or saw itself to be under threat from, from Western espionage. Um, and so it picks up on a couple of cases where, um, you know, there was an imminent war and, and there could have been a war and then in the, so the 63 one picks up on a roundabout just after the Cuban crisis. Okay. So it's trying to sort of shore up sort of national, you know, a bit of patriotism, uh, yeah. because these spies are patriots. Um, okay. Cause, um, I think I found on YouTube there was a TV series on East German TV, which was an espionage series, although I could have been imagining that. There is, there is, and I've forgotten the name. No, I can't remember the name of it. That's pretty useless. Anyway, Sorry, I'll make yes. sure it's in the show notes, that yes, one. Yes, yes. Uh, because, uh, yeah, again, my German struggles with it, but it looks like quite a lot of fun. There is, it's in a footnote in the, um, footnote in the chapter. <laughs> oh, okay. So that, <laughs> there you go. Um, what, what was the most surprising thing you discovered in your research, would you say? Or one of the most surprising things? Well, um, I mean, one of the, th- the thing that you said talked about files being sort of dry, bureaucratic, boring, tedious. Sometimes there's some real drama and emotion in there, and I suppose you'd never expect it. And sometimes you're just leafing through these files trying to work out what's happening, and then suddenly you find somebody has died. Or for me, often deaths in files are the most shocking because they're so unexpected and so un so bureaucratic. So you're almost following a family's story. Or a person. Yes. I mean, do you, do you become? You know, when you're reading right, that file, you almost become emotionally, emotionally. Invo- but but this is a real person and a real person's life. That's right. And although I don't know the person, I just know them through this paper trail. Um, I do sometimes get really shocked at. Well, in two cases, I that sort of, I'm reading blithely, reading away, and then somebody dies. In the case of my Uwe Bagger, um he. Um, his um, in the file, it's written down that the officer comes to visit him and he brings flowers because his wife's ill and his wife's dying of cancer. And um, for for several pages there, the he's meeting with his officer, talking about spy business while his wife's dying, and that shocked me. And I thought, well, surely espionage work has to stop while while your wife's sick. But no, he, he cranked it up a bit during his wife's death and the week of her death and you can it's all documented he he did espionage business um he got on the phone to talk to paul veens who who was an author to try to talk him around and he used the occasion of his own bereavement as as the as the occasion to ring him up and said oh yeah my, my wife has just died oh and by the way can you write us this very you know write us a piece for for this that's you know a piece that's really supportive of the regime and so that that shocked me the mixture of the personal and the um and the espionage yeah so he's using his wife's illness as an entree into contacting this this other person wow wow that's right so that really shocked me and then the conversation is written out verbatim of what he said to him and um and then he says to his officer oh I used the, I managed to use my bereavement as a, as a means of making contact. And in the, at the end of the conversation, he, um, oh, and, and then he promised to visit me. And at the end of the visit, he embraced me. So I'm developing a personal rapport. So he used his own misfortune 
and documented it. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> I thought that was true. Wow. Wow. Um, is there a, a little passage of the book that you could read to uh, just give our uh, listeners a, a little taste, although I think they'll probably be reaching into their wallets already. But <laughs> Maybe uh, do a pre-order online. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> well, why don't I start with the introduction? Um, if the Great War belonged to the soldier in the trenches, the Cold War surely belonged to the spy. The shadowy soldier on the invisible front fighting behind the scenes in the service of communism or the free world. During the Cold War, spy stories became popular on both sides of the Iron Curtain, capturing the imaginations of readers and filmgoers alike, as secret police outfits quietly went about their business of espionage and surveillance under the shroud of utmost secrecy. Curiously, in the post-Cold War period, there are no signs of this enthusiasm diminishing. Indeed, the advent of what is often called a post-political world order – and a politics without frontiers, has opened up exciting opportunities to tell these spy stories anew. We can now recompose these tales of collusion and complicity, betrayal and treason, right and wrong, good and evil, in light of new ways of thinking, as well as new evidence from declassified archival sources. We can read Cold War modes of storytelling differently, remain attentive to the fictional subtext in factual spy narratives and the factual underpinnings of fictional works of espionage. Well, if that's not enough to get you to buy the book, I don't know what will. Um, so when is the book published? August um, this year, although the cover is already on the internet. Now, I did notice the cover... Um, for those of you that have not seen the cover, can you uh, describe the cover for me, Ali? <laughs> the cover is, um, we think, is a very feminine cover because there's three uh, female authors. Um, so we're very pleased about that. There is a lacy, dark red, burgundyish bra um, on the cover, <laughs> which is a spy gadget. Um, it's used, um, it's, we found it in the Spy Museum in Berlin, so it's on display, and the museum was only too happy to let us use it on the cover. Um, and it is, to be honest, I think I have forgotten whether it's a recording device, an audio recording device, or a camera, but it's one of those two is attached at the middle of the bra. It's certainly an eye-catching cover. Almost reminiscent of some of those 1960s spy novel covers, to to be honest. Thank you very much for sharing all that all that detail. Um, I do with some of my guests. I do a, a little bit of a quick fire round, which is a little bit perhaps lighter than the um, than the rest of the interview. But the, the interview's been a lot of fun anyway. I've really enjoyed it. So I'm going to start off with: Can you tell me what your favourite Cold War film is? Well, I'm going to go for one that nobody will know, I'm sorry, called Gundaman, and it came out last year. And, um, well, let's say it's post-Cold War. It's about an East German uh, singer, perhaps the, the East German Bob Dylan, who was a spy, uh, a Stasi spy, and, um, and the film is all about that. 
I have seen um I have seen that. Well no, I haven't seen the film, but I'm I'm aware aware of it. I'll have to find mm. a copy with subtitles. Oh, I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are. Okay. Um if you if I gave you an unlimited budget um to film to make a film of a particular Cold War incident, what would you uh, choose for that? Well, I think I'd have to go for the one in our book, which is the um the hijacking of a Polish plane to um Berlin by um a couple that wanted to flee. So it's a, it's an escape story but also a hijack story. And I, and there's been a novel um that's been written about it and the chapter is also about the novel, but I don't think there's been a film. Okay, so this is the 1978 one from Gdansk. From Gdansk. Yeah. So they Berlin. were Polish? Were no, they? they were East German, but they wanted to hijack a plane to flee. And so they went to Poland and um and got on the plane, and but the Stasi was following them, and they actually hijacked it. Um, it la- and it, it landed in West Berlin, and then they were there was a trial. Uh, there's been a whole lot of there's a ju- uh, the judge was an American, so they um, the West Germans had to treat it as terrorism, but it was actually an escape story. So it's wow. sort of a very convoluted story. Wow. Now, what? piece of music would you choose as your Cold War soundtrack? Well, because I'm a fan of Berlin Station, I would have to go for David Bowie's I'm Afraid of Americans. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, I'll make sure that's in the in the show notes as well. Um, do you have any Cold War items you've collected? I think I've got my – I think I found the other day my visa for those those four weeks in when I was staying in um, – Berlin, so uh, yes, so I have my own little visa with a little stamp saying I got, and I had to fight to get a multiple re-entry visa, which they didn't want to give me. So right, okay, and is that your most prized item? I think so. I think. I mean, so. I, I presume you you've probably got a very uh, let's say envious library of of books. I do have, have you a got lot anything of books. particularly prized in in? in that that you think is unusual or difficult to get hold of? Um, no, I mean, I do have quite a few original East German editions and things, and, and but you can get a lot of them on the internet these days, Some, and they're quite easy, and unfortunately they're quite cheap too. I mean, yeah. have, you, have you still got a copy of the book that took you out to uh, East Berlin in 86. I have. Umtard Morgners, and I've got the East German editions of that. I've got several editions of that. Oh, well, there you go. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, there's a definite definite resonance resonance there. Um, If you could invite three people from the Cold War period to have a few beers or coffees with, who would they be and what questions would you ask? And if they were still alive. Oh, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. They can be... Um, well, I am very intrigued by both by Berlin in the cold from the Cold War era. So, I think I would like to talk to David Bowie about when he recorded um, when he was living in Berlin, uh, in the and recording, and um, just who he met and what it was like. And then the same applies to Nick Cave being an Australian, who also. Um, was in Berlin a little bit, little bit later, but at the same time and recording. So I'd like to hear their stories. 
So I presume you've seen Wings of Desire, the Vin Vendors film. Yes. It's Nick Cave's in that, isn't he? Oh, that's yeah, right. Nick Cave is. and the Bad Seeds are in the uh, one of the scenes. Oh, and so maybe, maybe talking of Cold War, maybe I'd like to have met um, Bruno Guns, who died this week. Yeah, yeah. No, he's, well, uh, yeah. one of my favourite films. Yeah. I think it really gives a good impression of Actually, 1980s West Berlin. Actually, that I was going to name that as my older favourite film. It's okay. just a beautiful film. And what, what questions would you want to ask them? I just would like to ask everything. I don't know. What was it like? What um, was it like? Yeah. I mean, I'd like to know all the ones in the West West Berlin, whether they had any contacts to East Berlin, because I, I get the impression that so much of the West just went, nah, we don't want to know it, you know. So, you know, we don't know them. and we, It was very inward. Lo- the West appeared very to be very inward looking. looking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's that great photo of Bowie and Iggy Pop outside the Neuerwache in East Berlin. I don't know whether you've seen it. It's a black and white photo. And Bowie's got this, like, trilby and long coat on. Mm. Um, I'll send it to you if, yeah. you if you've not seen it. It's a, it's a, it's a great image. Um, can you recommend, and you, I think you may have already answered this, but we're, we're, some people go with multiple choices, so you're not necessarily limited here. Um, can you recommend a film or TV series that you think would be a good factual or fictional representation of espionage in the Cold War? Now, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Um, Vicency uh, is my favourite, I think. Um, it It's now, I think we've seen three three um series and um it is about a, a family um where the father and the son of uh, one of the sons are with the stasi but you have a, a sort of a nice differentiated uh portrayal of the stasi you getting the sort of the reasonable father who's got a heart and then the bastard son who doesn't and, and then there's all this through intermarrying in affairs they you know, one of the sons connects that with the dissident movement. So it covers through the family story, it covers a lot of history. And that takes you through the end of the Cold War to the fall of the wall. And it, and the think the second and the third series picks up on that interim period after the fall of the wall and before unification when anything could have happened. And it sort of explores um, that I've had my eye on that. It hasn't been shown on British TV, um, I don't think, or I, ha- I haven't seen it. If any listeners <laughs> will be uh, happy to contradict me on that. Um, so, and I'm not sure it's available on DVD with English s- subtitles. I think it, oh, I'm not sure about the English subtitles. I do have a DVD version, but I'm not sure about the subtitles. Yeah. But but yeah no it sounds really interesting because that that I mean I'm I'm aware that there was often this um, family whole families working for the Stasi because the the family particularly the the children were thought of as trusted people because their parents were already That's working right. and therefore they didn't have to go through the screening yeah and they often yeah I've worked on a couple of cases where the father was an, a spy in fact I've got this other book coming out where the father was a spy and the daughter was asked to spy and the mother was also involved we'll have to have another episode talking about that gosh yes. 
Uh, I'm going to run out of uh, space on my recording equipment at, the, at this rate. Um, Alison, it has been a real pleasure talking to you. It's really great to talk to somebody who knows about this stuff um, and can give me some answers. I hope you've enjoyed being on Cold War Conversations. I have enjoyed very much being on Cold War Conversations. I think it's a great thing. So thank you very much for having me. Well, we are, we'd be very happy to have you back. So hopefully we haven't scared you off by our, let's have a look, one hour, seven minutes uh, chat. Okay. Well, I do look forward to telling some more stories from the Cold War. Well, I hope you enjoyed my chat with Alison. If you'd like to buy the book Cold War Spies from Eastern Europe and support the podcast at the same time, then head over to our show notes, which are at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 75. This will also show as a link in some podcast apps. The show notes also have some videos of the films Alison recommended too, so well worth a visit. Don't forget, if you like a Cold War Conversations coaster, and who wouldn't, then head over to patreon.com slash coldwarpod, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash coldwarpod, or again, click on the link in the podcast app and you will be helping to keep us on the air. You can also help us by leaving reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, our Facebook page or with your favourite podcast provider. This really helps to raise our profile and get new guests on the show. If you can't wait for the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners just like you continue the Cold War conversation. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.